Europe has got some of the best research. At UK, we've got sort of two of the, the five world's top universities, and I would argue at least as good or, or sometimes better research than goes on in, in the US. But what we haven't done as well is on commercializing the technology. And I think there's some sort of old school view that, that actually commercializing sort of is dirty in your hands and, and that it should be knowledge for the sake of knowledge. And I think that's starting to change. Hello, and welcome to the CVC Unplugged podcast from GCV, formerly known as the Global Venturing Review. I am your host, Fernando Moncada. Now, you may be wondering why this new look and why this new name. The short answer is to reflect the changes that the show has gone through over the past year or so. The slightly longer explanation is that in years past, and, and those of you who are longtime listeners will remember this, the podcast was very much focused on bringing you updates on the news and the happenings of that previous week. It really wasn't that way a review, if you will. Around a year ago, of course, we decided that a better direction for the podcast, both in terms of its content and the value that it would bring to you, the audience, was to change that to a straight interview format. So just two people, or sometimes more, sat down to talk and dig deep into all questions around corporate venturing, corporate innovation, technology, ecosystem building, and and just anything and everything related to those things. And that's what we've been doing ever since. Even after over a year, though, of having brilliant guests on from all across the industry, we were still keeping that old name. And now we've brought the branding of the show in line with its new premise and hopefully with its promise. CBC Unplugged will continue bringing interviews with investors, startups, market observers, and innovators of all stripes, digging into the subject matter for an honest and unvarnished look at corporate and other innovation in all its forms. And what better way to kick off the new name than by focusing on the cutting, bleeding edge of technology? My guest today is Miles Kirby, CEO of Deep Tech Labs, the Cambridge-based accelerator and investor focused, as its name suggests, on deep tech, which is, of course, an umbrella term encompassing a broad set of new technologies such as artificial intelligence, quantum, advanced materials, other advanced compute, and just about any technology that has not quite been commodified yet and still has substantial engineering or scientific challenges to overcome. With a background that includes a long stint at Qualcomm Ventures, where he also ran an incubator for a while, Kirby has been in and around the deep tech space for decades. Now, under the auspices of Deep Tech Labs, Kirby oversees two incubator cohorts each year, focusing on technologies at the very forefront of science. In our conversation, We talk about how to define deep tech in the first place, how the space has to reckon with what are sometimes much longer development cycles and other investments in venture, how mentalities are changing around entrepreneurship in Europe in a way that is helping close the deep tech gap with North America, the impact and implications of artificial intelligence, and how startups can make the most out of an accelerated program like the one that Deep Tech Labs runs, among other things. I found Miles to be an incredibly insightful guest on a range of issues that are increasingly relevant in today's world, and I'm sure you'll come away with a lot of food for thought yourself. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe to CBC Unplugged, and tell everyone about it. But above all, enjoy the show. So I'm here with Miles Kirby of Deep Tech Labs. Miles, how are you? We were just talking off screen about, about how it's luckily and, and mercifully sunny across the UK, you in Cambridge and, and I in London, so we're both kind of enjoying the, the good weather that's finally hit us. Yeah, it feels like summer just hit us. So uh, yeah, it's an exciting time of the year when we've suffered through the winter and now we get to enjoy the summer. Exactly. Well, fingers crossed it's not just a temporary blip, but but we'll enjoy it while it lasts. We, we, we can start the way we always do on the show, and that is a bit about you, a bit of background on you know who, who is Miles and, and how did you find yourself at the, at the helm of Deep Tech Labs? 
Sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, my background actually grew grew up in the UK, but spent 20 years in California and was with Qualcomm over there. And uh, so did did a master's over there and then uh, joined the venture capital group for Qualcomm. So uh, been deep tech investing for the last 21 years and also ran an incubator for Qualcomm and started projects in the late 2000s around uh, augmented reality, around machine learning. So a lot of the things that now are, are really big today. And then, then ran the venture capital group in Europe before setting up a fund for Allianz and Deep Tech Labs. So, uh, and I'll share a bit more about Deep Tech Labs in a moment. So I've been, been in the deep tech space for, for, for quite a long time now, both in California and also in, in Europe. So uh, it's been interesting seeing the uh, similarities and also the differences between those two ecosystems. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a great team and, and a very long-standing team they have over at Qualcomm, right? So, so was, I'm sure a very good introduction in, into, into the space. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I spent uh, 18 years there. So I, I spent uh, quite, quite a bit of time at Qualcomm through you know, a period of, of really massive growth. So uh, yeah, a very interesting uh, time. So then how did the Deep Tech Labs come along then? So Deep Tech Labs, so we set it up with the University of Cambridge, with ARM, as well as Cambridge Innovation Capital and Martlet here in Cambridge. And we've got a great chairman, Ewan Kirk, who used to run Cantab Capital. And before that, ran all the quant trading and set up the quant trading at Goldman Sachs, a mathematician by training. And, and so kind of all got together and sort of looked at you know, where there were some gaps in the ecosystem. And so we all felt that there was kind of a big gap between seed and series A for deep tech companies. And so there's a real challenge, especially for sort of, you know, often academic and engineers who, you know, this may be their first startup and they haven't necessarily run a company. They've maybe been more on sort of the engineering on, on sort of the, uh, the technical side. And so 70 plus percent of companies fail between seed and series A. And I think actually the number is probably higher for deep tech. And it's not because the technology doesn't work. It's often because the company hasn't been able to figure out the right business model, hasn't been able to get early traction, hasn't been able to fundraise. So we really sort of, you know, set up around this kind of concept of how do we help deep tech companies go between sort of seed and series A. Mm-hmm. I think it, it might be useful for listeners, just in terms of definition, how, how would you define deep tech? Often there are patents involved, which shows that it's, it's unique. We've got a number of different sort of focus areas. So climate is one big area for us. Silicon is another sort of area that's really interesting. AI is one of the other ones. So these are some of the key focus areas. We've now brought 24 companies through the program. And so a variety from silicon photonics processor, that's a, a tenth of the amount of energy per compute cycle than conventional processors, quantum networking company, battery company, company inspecting wind turbines. So quite an interesting difference of set of companies, but all with unique sort of technology and capability and, and often patents around them. And, and one of the things that I kind of find fascinating about, about deep tech as a, as a kind of loosely defined category is that a lot of it tends to be the technologies underpinning kind of other, other technologies and other kind of e- economic areas. So it really permeates every industry, every sector, and almost really every business that, that's kind of gone past a certain scale. So if you look back over the past, say, five years or so, what, what, what would you say are the kind of biggest or more surprising changes within deep tech? Yeah, I mean, actually, your first comment, I think, is very true, true actually, is, is around, you know, what's deep tech today? If we're successful, we'll just be kind of commodity te- technology tomorrow, right? So if you think about IT and computing, obviously, it's more than five years ago. But at one point, that was kind of like brand new, exciting technology, and only so the, the, the leading companies could start to deploy it. And now, you know, it's just a commodity technology that everyone uses. 
and it's sort of completely integrated into what we're doing every day. I think there have been a number of changes. AI has been just a, a massive area as we've got enough compute and enough data to be able to make that work. And, uh, and then, of course, the, the recent change on sort of la- large language models and generative AI is, is just, you know, it is incredible. So I, I think we'll have a similar kind of, you know, when we talk back about sort of, you know, computing and IT and how that just became sort of just sort of in, as part of the infrastructure, I think actually generative AI in many ways will be the same thing. I think you'll, you'll start to see, I know Microsoft is looking at integrating it into Office. Almost every business can start to look at how do they optimize. And I almost sort of view this, you know, interesting kind of play where in the first industrial revolution, what we did was we actually sort of took away the, the mechanical work that humans did. And now what we're starting to do is, is to take some of that cognitive work away, if you like. So you won't necessarily need as many folks on the, on the junior engineering side, but maybe more on the senior and you'll start to automate. I mean, interesting, one of our portfolio companies, the CEO, I was talking to him about this and he said, the junior engineers now with sort of generative AI can get probably three to five times the productivity that they had before. But he said the more senior guys, the uplift is much smaller because those are the guys with experience and they're the ones that are doing this more complex, more difficult, more cognitive work that that the machine learning algorithms can't do yet. So I almost see it as this kind of rising tide of capability. But no, I mean, that, that this, it's going to be really interesting looking back in five or 10 years time and kind of like, you know, look where we were at this kind of primitive stage and how much it'll be sort of, you know, integral into, I think, everything we do. No, absolutely. That's fascinating. And, and I think you're absolutely right that um, cer- certainly since the beginning of this year or, or maybe end of last year with, with the onset of, 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 of more kind of prominent and, and visible language learning models like obviously ChatGPT. You know, AI and its mirrored applications have really come to the forefront, you know, to a larger extent that it had been, you know, visible before. You, you mentioned there, in, in, for example, in software engineering, how it can be, if, if not a leveler, then certainly a, a force multiplier. What underreached perhaps sectors do you see as being more set to be changed by AI in the coming years? I mean, I think almost all businesses are, are going to be sort of impacted by this. I mean, one that sort of jumps to mind is, is the legal space. I mean, I think that's, uh, you know, an area where it's kind of, you know, very much sort of humans do, doing the work today. And, and, and a lot of that, I mean, I, I think generative AI could have a huge impact there. If you ask me to sort of write a contract sort of similar to contracts that we've done before, there's already that sort of vocabulary, that data set, that learning set there. And so uh, I think there'll be a, a big impact there. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see, will there be some new sort of disruptor in this space that can offer, you know, a much lower cost service to startups, let's say. I mean, there's Seed Legals already who's trying to sort of, you know, reduce the cost to startups from some of the standard documents. So that's one area that jumps to mind. But I, I think it'll actually affect so many different areas, and especially when you look at folks who are writing code as well, because there will be, a, you know, a lot that can be done and sort of aut- automatically generated. And then I think the humans will have to sort of quality control and uh, more around, you know, the, the tweaking and optimization versus kind of the uh, sort of underlying sort of core code generation, if you like. Yeah. And, and along with the, with the kind of intensifying conversation about AI itself, there's also been that parallel discussion about AI safety or AI ethics, perhaps. I, and I, I was wondering what your views are on that and, and how, how, how far it's come along and, and, and what still needs to be discussed. I, mean, I think this is a very, very relevant topic. I mean, I think I had an interesting discussion a couple of weeks ago at a dinner with Professor Neil Lawrence, who is a deep mind professor at the University of Cambridge. 
and we're talking about this topic. And uh, there are a few interesting developments there. One is that actually today, a lot of the machine learning algorithms are sort of black box and you don't understand what's going on with, within them. So it's very hard to understand where they're making the right decisions. I think for those, you can effectively put sort of like boxes or, or sort of controls around them. So you say, okay, you can't go within these. These are the thresholds you have to stay within. But, but then actually the discussion that Professor Lawrence was having was he said, as we move towards large language models, you can actually start to have some of these models auto-generate and learn and actually then be able to use natural language in sort of the, the, the way that it's implementing each of those layers. And so in the same way that a human can reason through how they made a decision, you can actually look at the AI and then be able to see the steps that it took to make that decision. And if you see sort of one thing in there that you're like, wait, 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 you know, that's, that's not right, that, you know, we need to change that, you can actually go in and change that. So I think that'll be fascinating whether large language models and natural language can come to building these models to be able to actually understand the thought process, if you like, where at the moment it's just obscure with this kind of black box set of weights that a human doesn't understand. And how, how do I ask, how, I suppose, to what extent do you see the, the more far away kind of dystopian predictions of where this technology could lead how, how to what extent do you see those as more fanciful than, than based in reality i mean i think what we need to do now is set the right frameworks to to prevent us getting to that scenario and i, I think the challenge is there probably needs to be some regulation around this uh, in the same way that i think you know self-driving cars need regulation as well right i mean we have to do a, a, we have to pass a driving test to drive on the road is it right that that an engineer can come up with an algorithm and and do we believe it's safe but but I think that what we need to do is understand what sort of safety nets do we put in place and how do we understand what the machines are doing and, and so be able to ensure that we're comfortable with what's go, going on from an ethical standpoint. But, but also, actually, you know, there's always going to be people who come up with ways to, to sort of, you know, make money at the cost of others or do things that, that are unethical. So to be able to understand, you know, it, are those intents built into some of these algorithms. So I think we need to have that discussion now. I don't think that there is a one answer. I think we need to work through this as an industry. But, but this happens with, with all technologies as well. I mean, there's huge, huge uproar with the first industrial revolution, where all these people with their cottage industries, you know, and their, their loom at home, who said, this is a disaster, I, I can't compete. My uh, business is, is falling apart. What do we do? And all, there was a huge amount of social unrest. And so this is just kind of a, you know, a, a newer technology that we have to deal with. So I, I think we just have to really think about it, have that public discord, and then you know, figure out how we want to do it. And, and by the way, I think it'll be quite different in, in different countries as well. I mean, uh, that's what was fascinating about COVID was seeing the response of different governments very much reflected their, their approach to, to, to life, right? With China saying, you're all locked in, in, you're not allowed to go anywhere. And America saying, we're not going to be told what to do. We're going to go out and, and uh, do whatever we choose and many countries in between. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be uh, scary, fascinating, but, but you know, I, I'm hopeful at least that we'll, we'll come up with the right set of controls. I, I think with any regulation, what happens is you put a, a basic regulation in place, and then you see sort of specific examples where that regulation doesn't work, and then you tweak it. And so you know, it, it'll be an ongoing process for sure. And what, what kind of appetite is there for that conversation among the people that at the cutting edge of this technology? Well, I, I think that you can't necessarily expect, a, a, you know, I, a, well, 
small startups, obviously, you know, the founders will have their own morality and their own view of the world, and, and they will sort of encode and build algorithms with, with that sort of effectively ingrained in it. But I, I don't think that you can necessarily expect that self-regulation to work in the long term, because there are, unfortunately, a few bad actors that, that will do things that, that, you know, the rest of society will view as being abhorrent or, or wrong. So I think that's where governments need to come in and, and start to think about that. But, but when I say governments, that really means of, you know, governments working with industry bodies to be able to have that discussion sort of across the industry so that we come up with something that you know, makes sense from a societal standpoint, but also makes sense from a business standpoint where you can't just put such heavy handed regulation that the business, you know, that, that the industry just can't expand. So I think it's, it's finding that, that balancing act and I'm, I'm, I'm sure we'll, we'll do it wrong. And, and we'll tweak it and we'll refine it. But I do think we need to start having that discussion. We, what we don't want to do is get to a point where something really, really bad happens. And then we have to kind of, you know, take massive steps and sort of, you know, disassemble everything that we've, we, we, we've done so far. Yeah, I mean, because it's not just attributable to just bad motives or anything, right? Because I, I would imagine if you're working on it, the, the technology itself can be so fascinating and so exciting that you just kind of run with it, right? Yeah, exactly. And they may, you may, you know, just, just happen to, to lead the AI down a path that, that ends up with, with a bad result. And, yeah, and there's lots of, you know, just very simple examples where you've got sort of machine learning algorithms for self-driving cars with the example where a stop sign and you put a bit of black duct tape on it. And now it thinks that stop sign is like a green traffic light. And so, you know, no one intended for that to be the case. It's just the way that the algorithms learned. That's, that's, that's the way it interpreted it. And so, yeah, there, there'll certainly be many of those cases as well. Exactly. And, and zooming out a bit, I, I would imagine, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, that in the context of deep tech, there's you know, perhaps a larger than usual importance placed on, on IP protections, right? Because you're dealing with such you know, technology right at the cutting edge. How, how do you assess a startup's IP strategy and, and the defensibility of their technology? The nice thing about deep tech labs is that we've got a fantastic community of, of experts. So we've got over 400 of, you know, deep tech experts that we work with. And some amazing sort of you know expertise in IP. So, for example, I mean, so so what we do is we bring ten companies a year through our accelerator program. We invest in them, and then we work with sort of industry visionaries to be able to help them figure out their strategy and they go to market. So, for example, on the intellectual property side, we had Roger Martin, who's the ex head of IP at Qualcomm, and then we had Sam Fennell, who is the ex head of IP from Arm, on a session together talking to our portfolio companies about intellectual property. Right. And that's kind of like gold dust, right? I mean, those folks are just incredible. And, and actually what we've done now is because those discussions are, are so valuable and so broadly applicable to people that actually we've now sort of developed a, um, a deep tech labs community and people can sign up to that and then actually see these, these talks to be able to sort of understand how sort of the leading practitioners think about IP and IP protection. And the other great thing that we heard about was some of the discussions around big IP lawsuits. So. I think a lot of founders kind of think about IP in isolation and, oh, okay, I'll use this for, for my business or maybe acquired. But then actually thinking about how IP is used in, in, sort of in battle is, is a really interesting, different way to think about it. So back to your original question of how do we um, evaluate, we've got a, a fantastic sort of community of folks that we work with. And so, for example, when we had a machine learning company, a company, uh, TDAV, that came through our last program that's doing a federated machine learning play. So then what we did was uh, we said, hey, Professor Neil Lawrence, who I mentioned earlier, DeepMind professor at the university on, on AI side, I said, you know, would you be willing to, to talk to the company? He said, yeah, I'd be delighted to. He spent an hour with the company 
And he came back and said, these guys really know what they're doing. You know, they, they're taking the right approach. I think there's something really interesting here and that I think it's unique. So, so you know, some of these kind of world-class experts that we can, you know, have come, come work with us is how we figure that out. I mean, Jem Davies, who used to run machine learning at ARM, he works with us. In fact, about two hours ago, I was on a call with him and other companies and he helps evaluate them. So to be able to say, hey, this machine learning algorithmic processor, what do you think? And he'll be able to say, hey, this is brilliant or yeah, that's, that's never going to work. So, so I, I think it's, you know, we ourselves don't have all the expertise, but we bring in the experts to be able to help make that evaluation. I think that allows us to make much better selections of companies and then also to help them much better when they come through our, to our you know, 10-week program to be able to bring those sort of world-class experts to be help, help them figure it out. Hmm. I, I would also assume, I suppose, that part of the, uh, the challenge in bridging that gap between seed and Series A is the fact that you know when 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 you're talking about advanced technology, perhaps you know the de- the development cycles are a bit longer, and maybe the revenue is a bit further down the road than you would usually see. So, h- how do you then go about assessing the feasibility and and the kind of go to market strategies for for something on the cutting edge? Yeah, we we spend a lot of time sort of talking about this, and and I think one of the interesting things is that folks who aren't deep tech investors, this kind of scares them off somewhat. And then you know, is this going to take longer? How do we prove that there's been progress made if we don't have revenue, right? I mean, revenue is a proxy for technology working customers want to buy, right? So if you don't have that revenue, that, then how do you validate that the company is worth however much you're, you're, you're going to value it at? And so that's where uh, something we spend a lot of time with our companies during the program talking about. And, and there's some really interesting examples. There was one company that uh, the CEO came to talk so Steve, who runs Riverlane, which is an interesting sort of operating system for quantum computers. And so he sort of talked about when he raised his Series A, he had very little revenue, and it was going to be a little while till, till he had revenue. So how did he show traction and, and proof points? Well, he'd been able to sign up the majority of the world's quantum computer manufacturers that were going to use his technology. So then it was less of a, is Riverlane going to be a success versus is quantum going to be a success? And so therefore, he could say, look, if quantum is going to work, then we've got partnerships with the vast majority of all these players. So, so we're always looking for those kind of you know, validations, technology validations, customer validations around that. And, and we spend a lot of time actually with our companies you know, as they get ready to do their next fundraise to be able to articulate that clearly so that investors can see, okay, now I understand that you've got, you know, real, so you've made traction, that you've shown the technology works, that customers, you know, want to buy this, even if they haven't yet, or the market's early. And then also actually on business models as well, because with new technologies, most of them are not sort of just sort of, you know, drag and drop replacements. So we've got a company, Salience Labs, that span out of Oxford University. And what they're doing is they're a silicon photonics place. So they're effectively using light instead of electrical signals to, to, to process effectively machine learning algorithms. And so they've shown uh, a small prototype working, and now they're building out their first proper prototype chip. And, you know, that takes a while and takes, you know, quite a bit of capital. And so, you know, they have to kind of, you know, really think through their story. What's the first product? What are they trying to prove with that first product to be able to allow them to go on to, to raise the next round? So, and there's not a one size fits all, which is why actually I think our so very interactive program and having sort of experts one on one with our companies then it allows them to be able to figure out for my company, my technology, my market, what should I be doing? Whereas I think so, you know, these generic 
programs are, are great for general education, but they don't really provide the same value that you get from this kind of one-on-one expertise and really figuring out, you know, for your company what you need to do. Yeah, no, that, that that's that's really interesting, and and you know, be, be, because it's so everything's so different and so specialized. Obviously, having a, a working prototype will go a long way. Having a lot of manufacturers on board will also go a long way. What other kind of indicators or markers along that path, you know, will will will, will give a sense that that or a signal that a startup in deep tech is de-risked enough for an investor to come in and put capital behind it? Yeah. So, I mean, again, everyone's slightly different. We've got a, a battery company called Anafite that's down in Bristol. There's a spin out from the university there, and they're putting graphene in, in, in the batteries, in the cathodes. So that one is also capital intensive and, and takes a while. For those guys on the battery side, there's some sort of fairly standard packs where you fairly standard steps where you say, okay, I can make a coin cell. Did that work? That worked. How many times can I cycle it? Okay, I can cycle it a reasonable number of times. Okay, now I can do a pouch cell. Now I can do, and so you can take these, these different steps. And then, of course, you know, working with, with customers at the same time to you know, start to get that indication that they're interested and excited about it. So, you know, so, so with those guys, that's kind of what they're doing. And then they've got, you know, then you have to show that you can manufacture it. They're starting to do kind of a very small facility to start producing it. And so they start with kind of grams and then they go to kilograms and then they go to tons. And then at some point, then they've got an interesting inflection point where you could say, okay, should they be producing this, these batteries or should they be working with partners to do it? And again, that's part of the really interesting discussion is, you know, should you be a licensing play or should you be a, you know, a company that actually produces? And so, you know, example of ARM, let's say, versus NVIDIA. And so ARM is distributing their designs to pretty much everyone and this massive developer community, and they're getting a small royalty on every chip. And then you look at NVIDIA, who's building their own processors or their own GPUs and sort of capturing, you know, a, a higher dollar amount. And, and of course, they, they just passed, I think, the trillion dollar market cap size as well. So all of those are, are, are really interesting. And some of those actually, obviously, you decide a bit later down the road, but you, you need to kind of show the technology working. And no one's going to drive the technology in the same way that you are, because they just don't have that motivation. So you have to kind of, you know, do that pipe cleaning exercise and existence proof to, to show that the technology works. Well, it's always helpful when, when you have a, a helpful platform like the one that that you guys provide in, in, through your accelerator, and, you, and you've kind of already gone through, uh, you know, some of the things that that you do to, to to kind of help startups that are going through the program. You introduce them to obviously subject matter experts, and then help them with their business kind of models and and and, and so on during the program. And then, but h- how do you look at if you do it at all? H- how do you look at whether or not a startup has, I suppose, taken full advantage of, of what you give them? How, you know, how, how do you assess? This startup has really kind of squeezed all the juice from this program, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, to, to start off with, I mean, we spend a lot of time talking about whether the companies are the right folks and then they're, they're the right founders that are willing to, to listen and want to learn. And, and we definitely have some founders who've come through who believe they know everything already and uh, aren't really interested in learning. And, you know, good luck to them. They, they may be right. They may not be, but we can't really help them if they're not going to listen and try and learn. I think, I think the ones that do really well are the ones that not just the CEO comes, but often the CEO, the co-founder, the CTO, you know, maybe the, the head of commercialization come. And I think that works really well because then there's a, a shared sort of learning as, as a senior management team. So it's not just the CEO going, oh, when I spoke to, it's more of a shared experience where like, oh, do you remember what Roger Martin told us about IP? We should, you know, that, oh yeah, we should do that. And so I think that works well. 
I think, you know, really being engaged and, and prepared and thinking. So, so we have a, you know, a, a 10 week program and we start with the long term vision of where could you be in the long term. Then it's a more of metrics and milestones for Series A. So taking your long term vision back to where you need to be at Series A. And then we kind of go through intellectual property and go to market and marketing, fundraising and, and finish with the demo day. But you might want different team members coming along to those different parts. So intellectual property, maybe it's the CEO and the CTO. And when it's kind of product management, then obviously product management or some commercial leads are, are good to have come along. But it's really about making the most of that opportunity. And then also, I think, building relationships with those folks that they're getting to meet. So they're going to meet 70 plus sort of, you know, world leading experts during the program. And, and I think what's interesting in the early days, there was one CEO who was completely gung ho. And so he reached out to every expert that he ever spoke with. And he said after like two weeks, he was just like drowning in emails and realized he couldn't really build a relationship with 70 to 100 people and have meaningful relationships. And so we do tell our companies, you know what, pick sort of, you know, a few people that you can build really meaningful relationships and, and you know, really get value from versus trying to sort of go after everyone. And then also, I think, you know, the other folks that get sort of the, the real value, and, and again, it's sort of down to sort of learning on their behalf as well. So we do a demo day at the end. And, you know, this is a fantastic opportunity for our companies to get in front of a huge number of investors. The last demo day we had a couple of weeks ago, we had over 250 investors signed up to come to our demo day and 360 total folks came along. So to be able to pitch your company to 250 investors, deep tech investors in one go is just phenomenal, right? So, but if you, if you haven't sort of listened and taken on board the feedback that we bring sort of, you know, world-class VCs in to talk to them, to advise them on how to pitch and, you know, what people are looking for, then, then they miss that opportunity if, if, if they don't really sort of learn from that. But I mean, we see just such a, a huge kind of change. And we hear this from a lot of our sort of mentors, advisors who see the companies before they come into the program and they're kind of raw and, you know, they often are, you know, very focused on technology, but haven't spent as much time thinking about the business and how they really grow and what the opportunity looks like to how they come out at, at the other end. And, and it's those guys, those folks that really engage. And, uh, and, but the idea is this isn't just kind of a, you know, it, it doesn't end after 10 weeks, then, then we continue to support them going forward. And hopefully they take all of those learnings to effectively, we almost think of it like building the, the right foundation to build the, the, the high rise on. And if you don't have the right foundation, you can start building for a while. And then, then, then you may start leaning off to the left and collapsing, which you don't want. So it's, yeah, I think it's all about really taking the, 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 as much advantage as you, as you can at from the program and, and building those relationships and learning as much as you can. So, so what are the things that you kind of really look at during your selection process? And what advice would you give to startups that are trying to, to get into your program or programs like yours? Yeah. So I, I think to be able to sort of clearly articulate the, the technology, but without having to sort of go into the minutiae, right? So you need to be able to describe it at a level that you know we're all deep tech experts, but you know we we may not be experts on catalysts specifically used for breaking down nylon materials, right? So be able to sort of explain how how that works or what that what that looks like. But but also a lot of our companies often come in with kind of the belief that if I've got the best technology, everyone will come, customers will come running. Unfortunately, it doesn't quite work that way. So I think it's also you know explaining to investors as well is, yes, you've got great technology, but you know, how will this be applied to the market? Why, why should I care? Right? Why, why does it make a difference to, to the market? Why am I going to be able to outcompete others? 
And then also, you know, do I have enough of a plan of how we're going to build this business? Now, things are going to change along the way, but you need to be able to have kind of a plan to start executing on and then sort of, you know, iterate as you go. So we had a, a couple of companies that presented today and actually one company had really spent a lot of time thinking about their commercialization strategy, the partners they needed. And then the other company was more academic in their thinking and was very fuzzy. And also when we asked them about their technology and what they were doing, they couldn't crisply articulate it. It was kind of a long rambling description, which again, they're, they're experts, so they understand it well, but you know, how do you communicate that well? So I, I think it's trying to articulate that. And, and we often tell our companies that, that when you're pitching to, to VCs is, well, first of all, they're not going to sign a check after that first discussion. So actually that first discussion is to try and get the second discussion and, and so, you know, them to realize that you're interesting. And then also to, to help the companies realize that while they may have the most wonderful technology, at the end of the day, the VC wants to put one pound in today and get 10 pounds back in a few years time or dollars or yen or whatever you're using. And often the founders don't really think that way, where they're, they're kind of thinking about their technology. And so I think also, I mean, this is just a, a lesson for everyone, right? That you want to be able to understand what are the motivations of the person you're talking to and talk to their motivations if you're trying to convince them that they should work with you. But a lot of these things aren't sort of, you know, immediately obvious to people. And especially if you've been in academia for a long time, it's all about your idea and, uh, you know, and, and trying to get published, which is a, a different dynamic. How hard does that tend to be then for, for the founders that are more perhaps academic or more tech focused to bridge that gap and, and kind of explain the why and why does that matter? I mean, the, the good ones who are super smart pick up on it really quickly, right? And, and that's what's, what's really fun about this as well, when you've got folks who are super smart, learn really quickly. And so they just haven't thought about the world in that way, right? So when you explain it to them, and so if experts work with them and say, hey, what about this way? And I mean, what, one of our CEOs, it was fantastic. And, and so I said, hey, hey, Nick, how was the, you know, the program today? And he goes, that was amazing. He said there were like three coin drop moments. He said, where I just hadn't thought about the world that way. And I, you know, it was all a bit complicated and fuzzy. And then you know, th- this person I was talking to just explained, well, why don't you think about it this way? And he's like, of course, that's the way I should, or that, of course, that's what I should be doing. And so I think it's these coin drop moments. And I was talking to actually someone yesterday about this who, who sort of, you know, advises startups. And she was saying, you know what, I don't feel I'm a rocket scientist by, by any means. But when I talk to startups, because her learning over the last 20 years is immediately obvious to her, that isn't obvious to people who haven't done it before. And so it's that kind of knowledge in those kernels where people go, ah, I didn't think of it. Now I understand it and now I can execute on it. So I, I think it's that, it's that kind of paying forward of, of knowledge. So, so I think you know, part of the way we think about the world as well is what makes successful startups is a whole ecosystem. And what ecosystems have done well, I think it's kind of like you know, the Bay Area has done very well because there's a lot of people in the similar sort of tech space that are all geographically quite close to each other. There's also a, a very open collaborative sort of way of doing things. And so serial entrepreneurs who, who then become angel investors and become chairs and so there's this kind of paying forward of knowledge and everyone's serving in, cl- in close proximity. I think within Europe, we've got a more distributed sort of set of folks here in Cambridge. We're very lucky because it really is kind of the deep tech hub of Europe. And, and we've had a huge number of, of, of successful deep tech companies here. But still, you look all across Europe and there's all these distributed groups. And so what we're doing is effectively bringing this whole ecosystem together and allowing these great entrepreneurs to be able to sort of give feed- feedback to the next generation. I mean, we've had Jamie Urquhart, who is founder of Arm, working with our companies. 
And, you know, and, and they're like, well, so what was it like at Arm in the beginning? And, and it's like, it was, it was messy. We didn't know what we were doing. We could do this. We could do that. We almost went bankrupt. We had Stan Boland, who's done five startups as, as our keynote. And each one of them, there was kind of this near-death experience in there. But he sort of persevered and kept going. And, and I think so, some of those stories are, are fantastic that sort of help, help the companies kind of like realize it's not just a fairy tale and it's always going to go well. So, so I think this whole ecosystem paying forward and, and, and actually what we find is a lot of those serial entrepreneurs, they really want to do this. A lot of them say, I wish I'd got this help when I was doing my company because it would have made the world a difference. And, and I want to share that going forward. So, so it's, yeah, I, I think it's really important to, to put this sort of around, and especially deep tech because it is so challenging. And being at the heart of that ecosystem in Europe, how, how do you look at the difference between Europe and the US in this sense? So I think when, when your latest cohort was announced, I think late last month, in the announcement, I think you, you were quoted as saying, quote, we have all the raw ingredients here to make the UK and Europe the global leader in deep tech, but we need to transform these raw ingredients into viable, scalable businesses. So, so what, what does that involve and what are the prospects of that happening in the medium term, say? Yeah, I, I think what's interesting is that the US and certainly sort of MIT and Stanford as kind of you know, prime movers there, they, you know, the academics very much think about, oh, I should be commercializing or people who are going through the business school are like, well, let me go see what this professor is doing. Let's commercialize it. And so that's just kind of part of the culture and the mindset. And, and there have been many successful examples of that. So people you know, coming out of Stanford University, they're less likely to join an investment bank and more likely to go join a startup or do their own startup. And I think in Europe, we haven't historically done that as much. And I came back to the UK in 2012. And I think you know, in the last 11 years, there's been massive, massive progress. And we've seen sort of unicorns being built from hardly any to now a significant number. So I think we're starting to see, see those proof points. But really what I was saying in that was that Europe has got some of the best research. At UK, we've got sort of two of the, the five world's top universities. Across Europe, we've got 50% of the world's top universities. And, and I would argue at least as good or, or sometimes better research than, than goes on in, in the US. But what we haven't done as well is on commercializing the technology. And I think there's some sort of old school sort of academic view that, that actually commercializing sort of is dirty in your hands and, and that it should be knowledge for the sake of knowledge. And I think that's starting to change. And I think the tech transfer offices are starting to get now better at licensing their technology. And you know, even a few years ago, some universities were saying, well, you know, we're going to take 50% of the company if you spin out of the university. And then we want the academics to have another 30%. And then the management team, when they first start, has 20%. By the time they exit, they're going to have almost nothing. And that model doesn't work. So, so I think there's been a lot of learning. I think the TTOs now, the technology transfer offices are getting much better and now sort of setting up terms that actually work so companies can get investment and, and that they can grow. But, but really, it's around you know, how do we help these, these companies to, to go from raw idea to actually sort of a fundable business and this value of death between kind of seed and technologies working but no business model to kind of you know, early business model and technology working is, is really important. And that's, that's why we're so focused on that. And if we can help it go from 70 to 80% failure rate down to 50% failure rate, then that's just going to have a massive impact for society and also you know, for, the, for the venture capital sort of community as well. So, so that's what I was really saying. Fantastic research, but we haven't done as well on commercializing. Part of that is because we, we haven't been doing it for as long. 
I mean, venture capital in the, in, in the Bay Area started in sort of late 50s, 60s. They've been doing it for a while. And we've only just started to ramp up. But I think we need these catalysts, these ways to bring the ecosystem together and all of these learnings to be able to help these entrepreneurs be successful. And, and also, you know, the other thing is, I mentioned we had 250 investors at our demo day, but also part of what we offer is effectively a, a vetting mechanism and process for these companies. So, you know, we hear from a number of VCs who, you know, I go to, you know, the, the, some of these other areas and there's one good company out of 20 or something. But, you know, one of the VCs said to me, every single company that comes through Deep Tech Labs is fantastic. And I know that the technology is good. Now, you know, the company may fail. There may be other things further down the road. And, and again, that's a huge accelerant, if you like, for, for the funding, right? So what, one of our, we had two companies in not this current cohort, but the one before, one company, and of course, this is, an, as you know, in a very difficult funding environment, we had one company that had five term sheets, and they picked the one that they, they liked the most and took that one. We had another one of our companies that came through that same program that had a 50% oversubscribed seed round. So, you know, again, having this kind of like validation and this exposure really helps these companies get the funding, which allows them to go on and be successful. So all of that is, in my mind, and, and I'm sure there are many other ways to do it as well, but we need to be able to help great research turn into real businesses that can get funded, be successful and build into big businesses. And by the way, there's a whole nother thing around, you know, exiting too early, being acquired by so the big tech companies that are non-European and, and all of that knowledge and, and so that ongoing value disappearing over, overseas. But that's, that's, that's a separate issue. We, we, if we can make enough great successful companies, then, then we can deal with the other part as we go forward. And what do you think's driven that shift in mindset, you know, towards commercialization and maybe away from the, the feeling of, of kind of dirtying your hands, as you put it, by commercializing it? I think there's there's a shift in a generational kind of shift in thinking, and um, I think it's also just learning by example. You see, sort of demos from from DeepMind, sort of you know going from sort of doing some research to building a, a you know a really big interesting opportunity that got acquired by by Google. And so I think people coming out of you know the top most smartest people coming out of the best universities, you know, instead of thinking, oh, I'll do investment banking or I'll do you know whatever, then they're like, okay, I, I, I want to do a startup. At, at the same time, I think there's a shift in thinking on some of the academics and the government's trying to push this, but I think just in general of, I can do my research and I can publish a research paper and that's great. And that's what's been rewarded hi historically. But actually, if I want this technology to really help people, it needs to be commercialized and it needs to be commercialized well. And if I want my technology to be used at scale, big company needs to be built. And, you know, maybe I'm part of that. Maybe I'm not. Maybe I start and I'm, you know, CTO and then CSO and then a more commercial team comes in. And then I go back to university and do some more research and spin the next one out and the next one and the next one. And that's a good model, too. So um, I, I think there's that change of thinking where academics are thinking, actually, this could be really useful. And at the end of the day, most of us want to sort of leave the world a better place and have, have a, a positive impact on the world. And that's, that, that's the, way, the, the way that you do it. So. I think it, you know, it, it'll continue to evolve over time. But again, I think even in the last, you know, sort of 10, 15 years, there's been a, you know, a really strong pro uh, progression there. And, you know, perhaps one hopefully temporary little, little hurdle to that happening, which is something that you just kind of touched on briefly, is the more kind of difficult fundraising environment that we find ourselves in. And I wonder for this latest cohort, if, if that kind of informed your program at all, did, did you have to 
put more emphasis on on you know how to raise money or how to raise debt or maybe are, are the investors kind of looking more at, at portfolio management versus versus more investment how how has that kind of painted the last program so so i would say that with this tighter capital availability for startups that it's not that the the tap's been turned off because the vcs are sitting on a lot of money that they've raised over the last few years and so what they don't want to do is invest at a high valuation and then have all the valuations drop and they don't want to invest in into mediocre companies and and so i think when there was abundance of capital and a bit more free free flowing market then sort of you know not all companies got funded but many many more companies got funded some that were maybe mediocre and i think what we're seeing is a real flight to quality so the best deals are still getting done and you know the example of this one company that had five term sheets fantastic company fantastic founders that people were were, were fighting over it which is will remain with with the very best companies and i think that's actually where you know our program becomes even more important because you know the, the stamp of sort of validation of deep tech labs plus also the help to be able to tell your story and to have the right strategy helps you go from potentially a, a, a sort of middle of the range company to, to a really strong, really fundable company. And so I would almost say that in this current environment, having you know, additional help and to be able to get better exposure and effectively marketed better to investors is, uh, you know, it, is, is more important now than, than it probably was a few years ago. And beyond fundraising, well, what do you still see as, as the main hurdles or, or, or obstacles in deep tech over the next five years or so? Well, I mean, there's always the, you know, there's, as you mentioned, funding, but I think it's also hiring the right team. I mean, that's always a key thing, right? Getting at so the A players, getting the, the best possible team that you, that you can around you, and then, you know, winning customers as well. So we spend a lot of time with the companies, helping them to post the program. And we have sort of an ongoing support program where we, we take a slightly different approach. Instead of going to all of the board meetings, and so sort of getting the update and, and all of the sort of the day-to-day, if, if you like, on should I hire Joe versus Sarah type stuff, it's much more of the high-level strategic discussion that we've had all the way through the program. So we have our companies, you know, my, my board's just not working. This is a problem I, I was invested in by these great investors who, who completely had the vision, and now they've left, and you know, almost every one of the, the board members had left. And now the people that came in didn't have a shared vision and the board was all pulling different. How do I deal with that? How do I fundraise? I, you know, I've got a problem with this person. I think I need to restructure the team. What should I do? We had another, com- another company that said, um, we're about to go fundraising. So I think, uh, and I'm doing all, as a CEO, I'm doing all of the sales. So I think we'll just stop sales for a while. And we said, no, we're not sure that's the right yeah, approach. Not. <laughs> how, how about we start to see if there's a way to backfill the sales and who else could we bring? And so then we made a recommendation on someone who's very senior, who's just left sort of a big company or a big startup, actually very successful, who can help you and maybe do it part time and help advise you. And, and so, so those kinds of things that, that, that we can do that you know, we, we think are really high value and through our network, uh, we, we, we can really help. Perfect. And, and maybe to, to close out there then, Miles, well, what's, uh, what's next for Deep Tech Labs? Where do you kind of see it, see yourselves growing over the next maybe two years or something? Maybe, I don't know. Going from from two to three cohorts a year, who knows? <laughs> well, so so I think we see a few really interesting things, and so what we do, we're looking at now is we've got this program working really well, great set of advisors, mentors, and so actually, and this is quite relevant for the GCV community as well. But we're seeing quite a few corporates now coming to us and saying we would like to run a program in climate tech, we'd like to run a program in silicon, and so what's really interesting about that is, of course. 
corporates are looking for, how do I find the, the next greatest new technology? And how do I engage with those startups and, and sort of work with them? And so we're, we're talking to some corporates about running a program specifically around, let's say, climate tech. And what they've said is, so what we want to do is to work with you, sort of help select the companies. But then what we want to do is, as you run the program, we want to bring some of our experts in to help them learn about what's going on. And also, we want to bring some of our customers in so that our end customers can see this. So we, as a corporate, are adding value to our you know, key customers. And then for the startups, that's giving them access to you know, fantastic first customers. So it's a very symbiotic sort of relationship and a win-win situation. And so we're really excited about that. So as I said, we're looking at doing a silicon one. We're looking at doing one around climate tech. And I'm sure there'll be many other areas as well that, that connect you of interest. So that's an area that we want to do more on. We're also looking at sort of geographic expansion as well. So we've had a, a number of different sort of, uh, countries who've come to us and said, hey, we love what you're doing in Cambridge and investing across Europe, but we'd like you to come do it in this region or this region. So I, I think we'll see specific focus areas. And I'd love to see more interaction with corporates because I think we can really help them. And then, and then also this geographic expansion. But I, I was having a discussion with actually a large corporate that used to have a, a, a venture business and they sort of shut that down. And then I was talking to sort of the head of innovation and he was saying, the real challenge is we want to find these companies and we want to engage with them. Part of our concern is if we invest in them directly, then they look biased towards us and it contaminates the exit. So they're not as valuable. And the companies are a little nervous about taking investment from us. But what he said was, actually, if we work with you and invest in your fund, and then we see the companies here, we can interact with them and we can have that interaction. But yet we're not biasing them. And, and it's a much easier sell to come and you know, have an investment from Deep Tech Labs than it is potentially to have with you know, what could be a polarizing corporate. So that, that's been a really interesting discussion. So yeah, I'm excited about going forward, how we can work better with corporates, because I think we can really help them and they can really help our, our portfolio companies. And you know, having spent 18 years at a large corporate, I've got a bit of a sense on, on sort of some of the pitfalls and, and some of the things that, that sort of corporates are looking for. Well, I could spend the next hour asking you about that and, and many more things, but but I think I have to I have to let you go at this point. But Miles, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure, and, and I hope you get to enjoy the rest of the of the gloriously sunny day that the UK finally has. That's it for today's show, folks. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to CBC Unplugged, and tell your fellow listeners about the new name. I have been Fernando Moncada. Our sound engineer is Mark Chatterley from Inner Production, whose great work you can check out at innerproduction.com. We'll be back again with another great guest next week. Until then, have a good one.